there's a verse later on in the Bhagavad Gita. We're in the fourth chapter. There's a verse later in the Gita where Krishna <clears throat> talks about um, people of a tree who have achieved a certain kind of, uh, you might say, yogic proficiency. People for whom the yoga lifestyle is, you know, kind of second nature. It's not a question of, well, now i got to go to class or now I'm supposed to chant. It becomes a part of a kind of metabolic routine. This is how we are. And people in that condition, Krishna describes as tushanti cha ramanti cha. <laughs> tushanti means joyful. And Ramanti, Rama, this, the name of Krishna, the Rama, we say Hare Krishna, Hare Rama. Rama means the source of all bliss. So not just joyful in the sense of able to kind of get through the day and navigate the challenges that come up, but going deeper into a state of blissful embracing of that condition. That's an extraordinary place to be. And if you've known anyone like that, they're, they're um, inspired and inspiring people. So those, are, those are keepers, those friends. So the chanting is a... We practice that chanting, and then it reaches a point where you can't stop chanting. How you doing? How you doing? What's going on? How you been? I haven't seen you in so long. It's so nice to see you again. You're here for the first time, are you not? All right. Well, why don't we just introduce ourselves quickly? Go around the room and just say your name and you'll kind of get to, you know, say hello to everybody. I usually start on my right, so I'll start on my left. Frank, thanks for being here. Hi, Linda. Linda, how are you? Fine, thanks. Naima. Naima. Welcome back. Karen. Karen. Kind of a fixture. Share. Share. Share is our Academy Award winning set design. <laughs> <laughs> Say hello to the folks, Kim. Hi, I'm Kim. <laughs> Kim's my neighbor out on Long Island. Sometimes she gives me some of the great vegetarian food that she cooks for her family. I drive over and get some of that. Anna, you want to say hello? Hello. <laughs> and in the, in the peanut gallery? Uh, we have a plug. We have two books. Awesome by donation. Uh, Gita Wisdom, which is a crypt version of the Bhagavad Gita, and a book on George Harrison. And they're written by our teacher, and we also have three pizza cards tonight, home by Kiki Cummins. Oh, that's a lovely one. That's a lovely one. Yes, thank you. Oh, Michael. Michael, thank you very much, Michael. CEO Michael. I'm Anna. That's Anna number two. Good to see you again. Yes, now please introduce yourself. Gary's visiting with his daughter here from, from Los Angeles. Welcome, welcome. Ricky. Hi, I'm Jacqueline. Hello, Jacqueline. Welcome. 
Rodney, everybody knows Rodney. Rodney is one of the senior Jiva Mukti yoga students. He's been here and teacher now. Been here. How many years has it been? Yeah, since you both. Thirty some odd years. And he's only thirty five, so since he was a boy he's been doing this. Yes, you are. That's every week. <laughs> well said, well said. Welcome back, one and all. So nice to have you here. Um, we're in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, and for those of you who are just kind of joining us, uh, <laughs> we go through the Bhagavad Gita one verse a week, and sometimes we detour off way, way off into all kinds of far out stuff. Um, but the idea is to go inside the verses of the Gita to um, excavate the, the deeper significance that lie behind this ancient text and to find a contemporary vernacular with which to express this ancient wisdom. And that's the real challenge. How do we know? There's a book that was published recently. It was uh, reviewed in this past Sunday's New York Times book review is the front page review of a book called The Life of a Fact or something like that. I don't exactly remember the name of the book. And it's somewhat controversial because it has to do with the reporter who wrote a story and took extreme liberties um, presenting the facts of this person's life and story. And his justification to the, uh, his uh, detractor, and there's a picture of the two of them standing side by side in the book review section, is that facts don't mean anything. That actually facts are not what's important. What's important is truth. And to get to truth, you have to, I'm using my own words here because I, I can't quote verbatim what he was saying, you have to move past the cognitive level of understanding something to the more emotive poetic, if you will, level of understanding. Well, there's some truth in that. I mean, after all, if, if you just look at a flower and analyze it for its chemical content and its you know, architectural structures and, and, and color schemes, that'll give you facts. But it doesn't really convey to you the poetry of, of a flower, does it? So uh, seeing things through that other lens is a very valid tool of analysis and appreciation of the world. By the same token, to play fast and loose with the facts under the pretext or on the pretext of poetic interpretation, artistic interpretation, is to run great risk of compromising the reality of a thing to suit our aesthetic interests or, or pleasures. That's very dangerous. And, you know, when you work in the Holocaust arena, as I, that's the other hat for me, is Holocaust studies, you really see this very vividly. 
Because as soon as you begin to... How many of you have seen the film Life is Beautiful with Roberto Benigni? Okay, well, there you have a film that uh, is completely inaccurate in terms of Holocaust history and it attempts to achieve humor. And, you know, it was an Academy Award winner, for heaven's sakes. I mean, you know, the reach of a film like that is really quite wide. And if you, if you think, if this is the only film that someone sees about the Holocaust period, what is it that they actually understand about the Holocaust? That a young boy survives a death camp because his father makes a game out of survival. You have to hide, and if you do, you get points. And the prize, if you get the most amount of points, is you get a tank. You get a whole tank for yourself. So eventually the father's killed, the boy survives intact to leave on a victory ride on an allied tank to be reunited with his mother outside the camp walls. Well, that's not history, that's Hollywood. That never happened. But without the Hollywood version, all that we're left with is the reality of the Holocaust, and that's too hard to bear. So we invent things to make ourselves feel better. What is the risk? The risk is that by being naive about what actually happened, the depth and the scope of the tragedy, we leave ourselves open to revisionism, to denial, and ultimately to history repeating itself because we're unprepared and unable to recognize the science when it rears its ugly head again. So there are risks at interpreting poetically, and yet what choice do we have how do we know? There's no audio recordings. You know, there's no marginal notes that Krishna has put in his own dialogue with Arjuna. How do we know what the intent was behind the words of Krishna's teachings? Words change. Does a word like karma, samsara, dharma, uh, you know, atma, I mean, the, the, you know, the key terms in the Bhagavad Gita how were they understood 5,000 years ago or however long ago the Gita was spoken? And does that migrate into the world that we know today? Some interpretation is required. And as soon as you enter into that arena of interpretation, we enter into a place of risky consequences. So it's significant that we're undertaking this that each week we look at a verse from the Bhagavad Gita and attempt to dig in, inside its meaning and transpose that meaning into terms, vocabulary, language, phrasing, examples that resonate for us here as New Yorkers or Los Angelites. That's quite an undertaking. That's quite an assignment. So what which is a long way of explaining why we can only handle one verse a week. So here we are after five years in chapter four. And, um, and I, I love this chapter. This chapter is absolutely fascinating and mesmerizing. And if you have a copy of the Gita there, why don't we try chanting? Uh, we're on page 186 if you have a hardbound orange edition which is the translation by my teacher, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And um, we'll use a simple melody that 
fits almost any verse in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, there's an invocation to this verse, Shri Bhagavan Uvacha. Occasionally, the Gita describes that Krishna is about to speak. Right? Shri Bhagavan Uvacha. Bhagavan, the word Bhagavan translates into uh, the, the residence of opulence. There are six opulence, opulences in the traditional Vedic or spiritual vision uh, of, uh, of ancient Indian culture. Wealth, fame, birth, beauty, strength, and renunciation. Those are considered the six opulences. And Krishna demonstrated those opulences in full. He, on wisdom, he spoke, he's the speaker of the Bhagavad Gita. All strength, he reveals in the Gita his universal form. It's the support of the source and the support of the entire creation. He demonstrates all of the opulences. And he was quite beautiful. <laughs> in fact, the Krishna of the Bhagavad Gita is also the Krishna of the Bhagavat Purana, which is, if you will, the heart of the ancient Sanskrit texts. In the Bhagavat Purana, the, there are 18 Puranas or histories that come out of this ancient culture, and the Bhagavat Purana is the one that describes the, the, the pastimes. The, what the Sanskrit word is lila, meaning um, activities, uh, life uh, engagements, adventures that Krishna undertook during his time on earth 5,000 years ago, according to, to tradition. So you have that same Krishna, and in that de depiction of him, his beauty, his loveliness, his uh, utterly irresistible character overwhelm the majesty of his godhood. So if you will, Krishna is God, but the people who knew him didn't hold it against him. They loved him because he was Krishna, not because of some job description that he's the supreme being. So that quality comes out when you get through the Bhagavad Gita. That's what happens next. Right? So the Gita takes us to a particular place, and then the Bhagavad Purana picks up from that point. So, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, Krishna Uvacha, Krishna says. And um, here's that simple melody that you can use. Bahuni me vyatitani. You want to try that one? Bahuni me vyatitani. Janmani. Tabacharjuna Bahuni me vyatitani Bahuni me vyatitani Janmani tabacharjuna 
personality of Godhead said, many, many births, both you and I have passed. I can remember all of them. But you cannot, O so doer of the enemy. Personality of Godhead said, many, many births, both you and I have passed. I can remember all of them, but you cannot, O so doer, subduer of the enemy. This is, of course, the answer to Arjuna's question in the previous verse. The question that Arjuna asked last week was, the sun god Vivaspan is senior by birth to you. How am I to understand that in the beginning you instructed this science to him? And the question was Arjuna's response to something that Krishna had said previously. What Krishna said previously is, in the beginning of the fourth chapter... I instructed this imperishable science of yoga to the sun god Vivasvan, and Vivasvan instructed it to Manu, the father of mankind, and Manu in turn instructed it to Ikshaku. This supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession, and the saintly kings understood it in that way. But in course of time, the succession was broken, and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. That very science of the relationship with the Supreme is today told by me to you because you are my devotee as well as my friend and can therefore understand the transcendental mystery of this science. And Arjuna asks, the sun god is senior to you. How am I to understand that in the beginning, meaning the beginning of creation at the dawn of time, you were there, you were there then? How is that possible? Arjuna and Krishna grew up together. They were friends from childhood. So here, here's your best friend telling you, I was there at the dawn of time <laughs> and I taught this great wisdom to the sun god and over the generations this knowledge has come down but it became lost and now I'm imparting it to you. 
because you're my friend and you can understand what I'm telling you. So there was, at the time of the Mahabharata, which is the greater text within which the Gita appears, this intrigue, battlefield intrigue is going on in the kingdom for control of the throne. And so now this war is about to take place to determine who will occupy the throne of Hastinapur, which is essentially, at that time, considered the throne of the world. This was not just for a small plot of land in India. This was considered to be a global kingdom. And so the stakes are very high. There's Arjuna essentially challenging Krishna. Now, we don't know the intonation. That's part of the challenge before us. When we read these verses, we can't say, how is he saying this? You know, it, when Arjuna says this, is he submissive? Is he saying, well, how am I to understand this? I'm, con- you know, I'm confused by it. Or is he, what do you mean? You were at the dawn of time. You know, what's, what's the emotion behind the way the words are being spoken? And what is Krishna's demeanor when he answers by saying many, many births you and I have passed? I remember them, you don't. Well, one thing I think is pretty clear. This isn't one-upsmanship. It's now I know and you don't. You know, it's, there, there's something more nuanced going on here. So what is that more nuanced understanding? That's where we have to get to. Joshua, yes. just a quick question. The personality of God, that's Krishna. Yes, it is. Krishna is uh, defined by Prabhupada. Prabhupada took this convention, these words, personality of Godhead, to describe Krishna. And behind that phrase, and you're anticipating what I was going to talk about a little bit, is this extraordinarily elegant and beautiful theology embedded in the Gita that we come to know God on three progressive levels. The first being an awareness of God as an all-pervasive presence in life, in creation, in the world. That there is this mystery that's going on that's greater than any one of us. That's called Brahman realization. Realizing God's all-pervasive quality. Brahman is the energy of the divine of which everything is constituted and in which everything resides. It's the sum total of all energies of creation, both material and spiritual. Brahman realization is compared to a blinding light in which you feel yourself merge. That in a blinding light, you don't see yourself anymore. So that falling away of ego, that falling away of individuality is the characteristic of one who has achieved Brahman awareness of God, a sense of the oneness of all things, me and all creation. When Brahman realization is imbued with the more personal, intimate awakening that this is not just a nondescript energy, There's a consciousness at work here as well. And that consciousness is not just out there, it's in me. It's in me, it's in my heart. There is a conscious relationship going on within me, with the divine. That realization is called paramatma, 
realization, realizing the Godhead within us, in our own hearts, that sense of always being with your beloved, a constant presence within you, is called Paramatma. The entire eleventh, entire 15th chapter, I think it is, of the Bhagavad Gita is dedicated to describing the Paramatma form of Krishna, what it is that we carry within us. That, you know, this body is a temple, not just because we are divine beings and live in it, but also because the divine himself dwells in our heart as Paramatma. So there are two sentient beings animating this form. When that sense of an intimacy, a personal relationship, becomes even further enhanced by an awareness that this too is something more than just poetic expression. There's actual form to this. There's actual personality here. That I am a person and Krishna is a person and where we're going is to this beautiful place called bhakti or or devotional service where we're locked in interest and that dance begins where you are always with Krishna and end up, it's not in this room, but over in the the Krishna yoga room, there's this big beautiful painting of the gopi cowherd women dancing with Krishna in the rasa dance. That's an all-inclusive dance. All souls take part in that ultimate expression of active love for the divinity, for Krishna. That is known as as, as, uh, Bhagavan. So you have Brahman realization, Paramat realization and Bhagavan realization, which is knowing Krishna as an individual. And that's when things start to really kick off and get going because, you know, as you can see in this picture here of Radha and Krishna, this is the world of two. Have we talked about the world of zero and the world of one and the world of two before? There's the world of zero, which is uh, the, the notion that when you come to the fulfillment of your spiritual awakening, when you become self-realized through yoga, meditation, other contemplative practices, what happens? Everything falls away. Consciousness ceases to exist. There's a disappearance. There's a zero there. Some forms of Buddhism advocate that Brahman Nirvan state. Huh? Emptiness. The world of one is the world of the Advaita Vedanta school, school of monism or Mayavada, which says there is at that point of full self-awakening an awareness of one's equality, one's complete identity with all things, the oneness of the self with the supreme self. You become God. You are God. That's the world of one. The world of two is actually a different version of the world of one. It says that, yes, we are one with Krishna, but that oneness is a oneness of love. It's a oneness of interest. Just as lover and beloved become one, it doesn't mean that they lose their identity. It means that they are one in love, they are one in activity, they are one in hearts, they are one in souls. 
They are, they are bound together by their love. That's the world of two. That's the world of bhakti. That's the world of the Bhagavad Gita, where you retain your individuality specifically so that you can engage in love. There have to be two for love to take place. So by personality of Godhead, Prabhupada is attempting to convey that idea that God is a person. He possesses personality. So thank you for the question. Was that a hand up? Yeah. No. And then you changed your mind, didn't you? I realized if I asked this question, we might not get through tonight. <laughs> well, hold on to it then and ask it in a, in a few minutes because I'm going to stop yakking here in a bit so that we can just kind of open this up to, to discussion. There's something I wanted to do here with this, this particular verse. Krishna is telling Arjuna, why don't you understand that I was there at the dawn of time? Because you have forgotten your previous lives. I don't. The difference between paramatma and we, the individual atmas, param means supreme. The difference between Krishna or the paramatma and we, individual jiva atma, is that we forget. We are divine, but we're small divine. We're sparks of the divine. And a spark, when it comes out of the fire, can become ash. It can go out. The technical term for this in Sanskrit is tatastha shakti. We are shakti, energy. We are tatastha. Tatta is the... the, uh, I've walked on a beach and you know that when when the, the water rolls up on the beach there's this line between the sand and the water. Yeah? But then the water rolls out again and the line disappears. Right? And then the water rolls in and covers up that line. So tatasta means that margin, that marginal place where sometimes we can be overcome by the material energy and sometimes we are clear of that material energy. We're on that cusp. Right? So tatasta shakti. We forget our divinity because we become so caught up in the matrix of this world that we fall into a kind of pattern of automatic behavior. This is you know, the way I describe it, and I know those of you who have been here for a while, you've heard me say it before, you get up in the morning, your feet hit the floor, you grab your latte, and you're off and running. And you're you know, into your thing. Which is why, people, you do your morning meditations in the morning. Before that material identity can take over, the first thing out of your mouth in the morning should be Hare Krishna. <laughs> when you wake, you open your eyes, you wake up, Hare Krishna. Start your day with a little Krishna. And then, even better, have a little place at home where you sit and you do your meditation. Even just five minutes. Something. Start your day with, you know, it's like orange juice and vitamins. You, know, you want to give yourself that start. So, it's a good time to do it in the morning before that wave covers the line and we're back into that <laughs> groove again. Right? Okay. Let's go deeper. Let's take this first and now take it a level down. My sense of this verse 
my sense of what Krishna is telling Arjuna here is not just that you're Tatastha Shakti and I am Parashakti. I am the supreme energy and you are marginal energy. So you have a tendency to forget. You don't remember your last lifetime, let alone where you were at the dawn of creation. But I know. Because I don't forget. I am not Tatastha Shakti. I am Shakti Man. I am the source of all Shaktis. The energies flow from me, so I don't become overwhelmed by my own energies. That's the answer to people who say, no, no, we're all God, we're all Krishna, but we're having our Leela now in the world. We're having our pastimes by taking on a body and, and going through this life so that we can have the joy of again becoming self-realized and again becoming Krishna. <laughs> that, have you ever heard that argument? It's an interesting one. <laughs> it's fascinating. And I've got a bridge I want to sell you too. Um, the answer to that is that you would have to somehow rationalize how it is that Krishna becomes overwhelmed by his own inferior material energy. How does that happen? How is it? You'd have to justify that you're going through sufferings and crises voluntarily. That this is really something of our own free will, that we've adopted this role in this world. Right? So that doesn't quite compute. But there's another level here that I think Krishna is pointing at, and it's this. I want to I get to it by going back, if I may, to... Uh, World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the, the map of Europe changed dramatically at the end of World War I. There was a desire on the part of the victorious powers to punish Germany. And for a number of reasons, not the least of which was that people were anxious to go about building their own new homes, you know, because now these different, you know, Poland came out of the carving up of the map that emerged from World War I. Other nations had their new parameters, and, you know, there's this rather dangerous cutting up of the vast German empire into these little principalities. So you had these pockets of nationalism in different places just ready to erupt at some point. Um, that Treaty of Versailles, which Hitler pointed to with such effectiveness, saying the embarrassment and the shame of that treaty, which took Germany, the great nation of Europe, and diminished us to the bottom of the heap, must be now undone. That must now be rectified. And so he's bringing back the pride in the German people and that rousing nationalist fervor to again become the great nation that Germany once was prior to the Versailles Treaty. It also had to do with the policies of President Woodrow Wilson, who pretty much single-handedly invented the concept of national self-independence. The idea behind national self-independence is that what you do is now your business. You, what happens behind your borders is your affair. It, it's the isolationist policy that ended with World War II, if you will. That we have our own affairs that we have to be responsible for. 
we're not the responsible elder brother of the rest of the world. So what happens over there, had there been you know, that sense of um, national uh, integrity and uh, disengagement, we would not have invaded Iraq, for example. That wouldn't have happened because it would have been a sense that you know, whatever happens in Iraq, that's the Iraqi problem, let them deal with it. We have our own problems to deal with at home. So that isolationist policy of Wilson dominated politics pretty much up until the outbreak of World War II, at which point we realized we can no longer afford to be uninvolved with the affairs of other nations because their activities are now beginning to affect us. And there was a sense now that there's this larger world and this, if you will, global responsibility that we have to one another. So all of a sudden, poof, there's this dawning awakening that really maybe what we need is some human rights conventions, right? Duh. So World War II ends and we have the United Nations founded in 1945 from which emerges you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights and we have Laws of the Seas conventions and we have... Um, you know, uh, women's rights, rights of children, and all of a sudden there's this, as though a moment of epiphany had occurred <laughs> in the history of humanity that we actually are a bit one family and we have some responsibilities to one another. Right? My sense of this verse in the Bhagavad Gita is Krishna telling Arjuna. You may think that all you need to concern yourself with is the affairs going on in your own life. Right? You may think that this is as far as your sphere of interest goes. Let me tell you something different. There is this cosmic grandness behind things which preempts any idea that you may have about what your one little life is all about. There's a much bigger thing going on here. A much bigger thing. And let's become a little more aware of that. Let's become a little bit more aware of the fact that this one moment in time, this one lifetime, is not the totality of your interests. We're immersed in it, so it absorbs us, but step back away from that just for a moment and smell the roses. Look around you. You're part of a much vaster, beautiful landscape of creation that dates back before recorded time, before the universe was created. You're eternal. You're immortal. Would that not influence us in our own little way, just as that kind of aha moment at the end of World War II influenced the entire future of global politics, that maybe we actually are all connected, maybe there is some bigger picture that we're a part of. So that's where I think, that may be an example of the idea of going beneath the immediacy of a particular verse or teaching that, that Krishna has given you. Okay, enough yak, 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 yak. 
Let's open this up a little bit. Does any of that um, make sense? Does anyone agree or disagree with that? I mean, it's, I, I admit to you, it's an interpretation. And we started this by saying interpretation has its risks. Okay. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, the verse in the Gita is Punar Janma Naiti Mamiti Saarjuna. Punar Janma, more births, Naiti, no more. So yes, the answer is absolutely. According at least to the Gita vision, this cycle of repeated births and deaths that the soul goes through has an objective at the end of its road And the purpose of Krishna speaking the Gita is to save time. You don't have to take the local. You can take the express. And that's basically what Krishna is doing with Arjuna, is saying, let's get it now. Let's wake up now. There's even this lovely verse that sometimes I think it it might be in the Jiva Mukti uh, mantra book. Um, um, Asatoma jate gamaye. <laughs> Do you have the translation? Wise guy? Yeah. From ignorance to wisdom to enlightenment. Yeah. No more birth and death. Now come back, come back to your place in eternity. So it's not something that you get. It's not a golden ring that you get if you, you know, go around the merry-go-round often enough and then can grab it. It is the constitutional nature of the soul, of the Atma, that it is eternal. And everyone has an intimation of that. Everyone has some sense of that in him or her. We may not be always thinking about it, but when we do think about it, it's pretty clear that I'm alive. I know I'm alive. And I remember being alive in my childhood body. I remember going to summer camp and I remember that guy who, you know, took my baseball card or whatever. I have those memories because I, the Atma, was there even though the body is gone. That body's not there anymore. That seven-year-old body, that 14-year-old body, that 21-year-old body, that 28-year-old body, every seven or eight years, I guess it says, in certain calculations, the molecules and the cells in the body die and are replaced, so pretty much you've reincarnated, if you're 35, you know, five times already. You have different bodies. But the sense of self is still there. But that does not change. So, yes, that replacing of bodies with other bodies and other bodies, that ends at the point where you become jivan mukta, if you will an aware soul, even within the body. You don't have to wait to leave your body to be liberated. Yes. You know that? Yes. Okay. That comes with the $12 class. That, <laughs> <laughs> That's the bonus. Thing. 
You can be liberated now. You don't have to wait. Yeah. So, yeah, you come. Because why do you take another body? You take another body because there are things here that you want still to accomplish. You come back, you reincarnate into another body because there are things here that you want. If this place no longer holds that appeal, if it no longer has that control over you, then you don't have to come back. Then if you come back, that's the, that's the bodhisattva coming back. Okay. Right? You come back intentionally because out of your love for others, you wish to serve them as a teacher, as a mentor, as a friend. Then, then yes, you come back. But that's different. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, you're quite right. The yoga practice is both for enhancing living and also for enhancing dying. It is so that at the moment when the soul is ready to leave the body, when the body can no longer maintain consciousness, it's come to the end of its utility, of its strength there is a peaceful passage out of the body. So there are what are considered auspicious endings and inauspicious endings. An inauspicious ending, for example, is if someone dies untimely in an accident, for example, and they're not prepared. An auspicious ending would be you know the end is coming, you have a chance to offer your love and... um, ask for forgiveness. One of the conventions, if you will, in the Vedic culture, the Gita culture, is that if you know you're about to die, you will approach people whom you may even inadvertently have insulted or harmed in some way and you ask for their forgiveness. So that that's gone. You're not preoccupied with that. You also give everything away. There's a distribution and charity of all belongings. And usually there is, in the kind of hospice care that you'll get in Vrindavan, for example, in holy places, there are places where you can die in a spiritual environment. And there will be kirtan, gentle music, the sounds of the names of God around you. There will be images so that the eyes are always seeing some remembrance of the divine. There will be incense or flowers so that sense of smell is absorbed in the um, items on the altar. All of the senses are absorbed. And in that frame of mind, uh, you're already free. Death is a formality at that point. 
The lovely thing about bhakti, what bhakti contributes to the yoga process, is that it infuses your yoga with this awakening awareness of the relationship with Krishna, which you can have with you every moment. That stays with you walking down the street, on the bus, on the train, wherever you are, working shopping, whatever you may do, there's this inner... If you've ever been in love, you know what I'm talking about. You're there, you know, and wow, everything is really nice. And you go about the the activities of your life in the same way, but there's this inner meditation going on that just is like a, a flame that just energizes your life. So that's the bhakti contribution, is that flame of love for Krishna that you can then carry with you wherever you go. Interesting detour, isn't it, into the notion of international law and war crimes from this. But there, it, it, it's an important parallel, isn't it? You know, the idea that we actually are committed to one another, that we have a relationship, and, and uh, that um, this is in the Gita. It's described as inaction in action. <laughs> that if you engage from that place of compassion. If you engage in that kind of unselfish activity, which is sometimes described as the lives of the saints, then there's no karmic effect. The same activity done, but with a view toward some personal return, engenders a karmic effect, and that leads to coming back. So in that sense, even good karma is bad karma because you have to come back in order to reap the results of your good karma. You do charitable work for your, with a sense of, well, oh, what a good boy am I. And then you have to come back in order to enjoy the result. <laughs> so that sense of, not, not me. It's not about me. What can I do to serve this? How can I help? And that works very well, you know where? In the workplace, in your office. How many of you go to work in an office? Right. works really well in an office. Instead of thinking, I really just want to push this asshole down a flight of stairs. You know, if you think in terms of, how can I serve this experience? What is the contribution that I can make here? It's amazing. First of all, other people really appreciate that. They don't get it too often. Secondly, it opens the door to all kinds of other possibilities that you might not have considered if the only thing that's on your mind is I really don't want to be here. Now, I'm not telling you that you should stay in a bad job, but what the Gita says is that there's usually something more that you can do than you may be aware of by adapting this posture of, if you will, the rule of international law (laughs) 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 Or, or this verse in the Bhagavad Gita that many, many births have we gone through. You may have forgotten them, but, but I don't. There is this larger 
picture, this larger story going on. Look for that bigger picture and you will find, I think it was Aristotle who said, where your skills meet the needs of the world, that is your vocation. Isn't that lovely? It's very Gita, very Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, John. Tatasta. Tata is a line, and the Tatasta Shakti is the individual souls who can sometimes be self-aware, sometimes overcome by the material energy. Um, you know, I, when you said that, I was thinking, from my experience, I said that's kind of this tug of war, you know, being kind of pulled in one place yeah. and the other. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was thinking if you could talk about that a little bit, where, you know, you have these moments of, of clarity, as you put it, and then you're immediately back, and, and it's, I find that difficult sometimes, because it feels like I'm, you know, going, <laughs> are we going to go back three weeks to when we broke out and told each other our most embarrassing moment? Is that where we are now? <laughs> that was a good class, actually. <laughs> Some does interesting it, stories. Does it, uh, does it address that? You know, that, that? Yeah. Um, I got angry about a week ago, and I'm still living with that. Um, and I got angry because I, was, I felt offended. Someone said to me, well, why don't you tell me what you want? I, I was offering to help at a spiritual center in New York. And uh, the person in charge came back and said, in all innocence, said, you know, well, I'd, I'd like to accommodate you. So tell me what it is that you want. Just be straight up with me. Tell me what you want. And I felt so angry about that. Say, I'm, I'm trying to offer something in this Bhagavad Gita spirit, you know, of... How can I help? And you're asking me what's the selfish interest that I'm trying to serve by doing that. You know? And you want me to be straight with you? All right, don't talk to me like that. And I afterwards I went, whoa, wait a minute. Like, Slow down. You know, holier than thou? You know, where where are we coming from here? And I had to think about this. You know, why why did I get so offended by that? And it's probably because I really don't think that I'm very spiritually advanced. And therefore, if someone says that I'm trying to do something because I have some personal interest to be served, in the back of my head I'm thinking they're probably right. And that upset me. We're complicated creatures, you know. Things don't, <laughs> things don't just happen on the surface. There's all stuff going on. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that happens all the time. You know, I mean, maybe sometimes we have this image of, you know, a very spiritually advanced person is someone who just like never touches ground, you know. It's just not the case. It's just not the case at all. Real spiritual advancement is when you fall down, you pick yourself up and you keep going. That's spiritual advancement. Not that you no, no longer fall down because, you know, you've achieved some kind of heavenly homeostasis with the universe. It's when that happens, you know, okay, what got me to this place? And you click into that frame of mind which says, my dear Krishna, help me to understand what happened so that I can do better next time. So there's no bitterness in that. There's no anger in that. There's no self-reproach in that. There's a sense of, I, how did it happen? 
in the spirit of, I want to do better. Let me see what I can do better next time. So when you feel that sense of being pulled back into an old pattern, an old way, that's, that's what you want to think about? Yeah, old, old habits die hard. Real hard. How many of you are dealing with old habits? Nah, you don't have to. <laughs> I knew the answer to that one. That was a loaded question. Sure. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about not even old habits, but new habits? New, <laughs> new habits. Not new habits, but just uh, kind of been having this experience of the more I'm kind of turning my life over each day, more challenges that are very clear that their challenges are happening. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just like right up in my face. Yeah. Um, did I give you that example of the one of my god brothers who went to our teacher Prabhupada and said, you know, before I became a Krishna devotee, my life was pretty cool. I was pretty together. You know, I had my thing. Ever since I've started chanting Hare Krishna, you know, my life is chaos. Utter, utter chaos. And Prabhupada's response was, yeah, it's kind of like cleaning your room. When you first start to clean your room, the furniture is in the wrong place and there's dust flying everywhere. It looks terrible. It looks much worse than before. But by this cleansing process, when you're done, it's going to be better than it ever was. So you're dredging up stuff that could have you know, we are dredging up stuff that could have been there for lifetimes. Lifetimes. Never, never underestimate quite how deep our material conditioning goes. It's quite deep. You know, I, I love when people come up to me and say, hey, Yogeshwar, you know, I've been chanting now for two weeks and, you know, I'm like, I don't know. Nothing's happening. <laughs> Give it a chance, you know. <laughs> We've been in this world a long... Many, many, many births you have taken in this world. Many, many births. You've been accumulating all of those calluses and bad habits and you know, misimpressions and wrong ideas about yourself primarily as well as others for a long time. So if it doesn't you know, all just magically disappear... I remember someone, the young lady in the early days, back then, in the early days, went to Prabhupada and said, Oh, Prabhupada, when I chant Hare Krishna, it's so beautiful. I see colors and I hear music and birds are singing. And Prabhupada looked at her and shook his head and said, Yeah, that's right. Keep chanting. It'll go away. Spiritual life is not this kind of you know bubblegum thing you know where all of a sudden you're seeing colors and you know skies of blue. That's that's not what it is. It's it's tough slogging. It's work. It's work. But man, is it satisfying work. You come out of your Krishna practice with in a sweat, and boy, you feel good about it. You feel good, like, wow, I, I finally confronted that thing in my life that I never thought I could deal with before. Oh, my God. Where the hell did that come from? And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, maybe I'm not the 
lost total lost cause that I thought I was. Maybe there's some hope here. And that confidence, that's good ego. That's good ego. Never let anybody tell you that your goal is to completely lose your ego. Big mistake. Huge mistake. First of all, you can't. Ego, atma, is permanent. It's eternal. You have an ego. What you should let go of is the stupid ego. You know, but come back to the real ego, which is I am servant of Krishna, I am a lover of God, and what can I do here to engage with the world and be of some, of some service? And the more I can do that, the better I feel. That's good ego. That's wonderful ego. That kind of ego might even you know, save the damn planet eventually. So build up the good ego. It's like good cholesterol or something. <laughs> Joshua, um, so how do you know where you are in your spiritual development and is it important to know? I think you've asked similar questions I before. Asked similar questions. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> how do you know where you are? And what was the second half? Is it important? And to is know? it important to know? Um, you know where you are in the sense that when you eat, nobody needs to tell you you're getting full. You feel it. It's a palpable sensation that I'm digging this, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. This is doing something for me. I, you know, you you know it, and it's imp- yes, it is important to know that because without that barometer. How will you have the encouragement to continue? So it is very important. Yes, absolutely it's important. You don't want to get all, you know, full of yourself over it. I mean, that's, you know, that's not so good. Now I'm so spiritually advanced. <laughs> now that, that's dangerous. But that's not your problem. <laughs> yeah, um, you, you, you can know it because it is a natural quality of the self you know it because it feels natural, it feels right that there's some part of you that all of a sudden, wow, I'm beginning to feel myself again it's like, was that an Advil commercial I'm feeling myself <laughs> again you know. um, because the false ego is stripping away all of the defense mechanism, you know, what is, what is ego after all, it's a, you build up a defense because you're afraid, there's a Frickin' nasty world out there. You know, so we're constantly defending ourselves in relationships, especially, especially in relationships. It's like, what did she mean by that? What is it she really mean? <laughs> you never, you know, allow yourself to be open and vulnerable. Why? Why? Why don't you want to be vulnerable in front of somebody else? Because they're gonna do what? They're going to stick it right in there and twist it till you're in pain. You know? <laughs> and if you understand this verse of the Bhagavad Gita, Bahuni me vyatitani, janmani tattvacharja, if you understand that you are the immortal, invincible, unchanging, impervious to stress and tension and other people's nastiness, atma, then of course you can be open and vulnerable. There's nothing anybody that can do to you. 
what are they going to do? Fire you? You know, punch you in the nose? And that openness invites their openness, okay? You want to know what goes on behind closed doors in diplomatic circles? It's this. It's jockeying for position. It's always, what's, what are they really thinking, you know? You know, it's this kind of trying to psych out the other person, you know, because what they say, you can't trust what they say. You know? you know what the starting point is in Vedic culture? You are your word. You are your word. That's the starting point. That's spiritual culture, that there is truthfulness to the core. There's never any lying or pretense or, or covering up because there's, there's no reason. You are acting on that spiritual platform, and that's for your benefit and everyone else's. So there is truthfulness. And that truthfulness actually is what people are looking for. They want to be able to trust. The only way they can trust is if they see someone who isn't always on that defensive, who doesn't have that ego thing going. You can only come to that place if you understand what Krishna is telling Arjuna right here in this fourth chapter. Act from that place. And, and how do you do it? You, you try it. You pretend. Play act. Go into theater. It's all theater. Just try it. Because the more you do it, the more that natural self will emerge. You are by nature kind, funny, beautiful, smart. These are all qualities of the soul. You know, It's all described there. All the things that you would love to be, you know, you are. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, repeat. Game plans are good. Improv is better. And, and, and you know, the, the real deep bhaktas, they're in that jazz improv space. They're, they're, they, they don't... The, the regulative life, the regulated life, is called sadhana bhakti. Sadhana bhakti means that because we're all beginners, we're, there are certain things that we should just do. It's healthy to do it. Go to sleep early enough that you can get up early so that in the morning you can have time for your meditation. I know business people who refuse to go to the office before they've had their hour, hour in front of the altar performing arti and puja and had their japa, their chanting, because without that, they, they say, I can't do my work. It's either it's either it's either this or antidepressants, you know. So that's their strategy, you know. And then you're equipped; you can go into any situation, and you don't always have to have the game plan in place, because you're open. 
You know, the rule of first rule of improv is whatever you're given, you go with it. So that's kind of like the life of the saints, you know, is, is walking through this world, just kind of going with it. And how can I be of help here? How can I be of help there? What can I do? So, yeah, it, and so we start with that. You know, am I on first base? Am I on second base? I, I'd like to get a sense. What are my coordinates here, right? But being inside the rocket is not necessarily the best place for tracing its trajectory. So you're better off continuing to cultivate that sense of wherever I am, let me, how can I serve this moment? <laughs> there's this nice, I'll call you one second, there's this nice quote that um, uh, George Harrison used to offer in uh, interviews. He would say, Past is not that thou canst recall. Future is not, may not ever be at all. All there is is the now. <laughs> and, and that's, I think, where he came to in his life. Is like, now, let's live now. What is this moment? Where is Krishna in this moment? That's, that's the question that the devotees in Vrindavan are always asking. Where are you, Krishna? Where are you? Now, where are you now? How can I see you now? That's a beautiful way to live. Yes, Rodney. I would say, don't worry about what happens later. I keep just kind of thing. practice now, forget about later. Because it's like you can hammer a nail to a dish, go to school, you have a great job, you make more than I do. How about standing on your head? How about taking the posture? What's the difference? The thing is, you talk about death pole, you know, um, I, I say it the other night, what do you think of death? I said, it's an accident. It's like a death pose, but yet I feel great. It's like a light inside. Mm. In other words, use what you got. You have the right to become one. So in other words, all these stories of hole and this one and that one, you have all the gifts inside. You can go to school. You can be a carpenter, singer. How about becoming one? It's like take all your interest, put it into the self, practice what you got, take a posture. You read the book, I would always say, after you read the book, do we yoga posture, tell me which is better. The answer was the yoga posture. I said, because you did. There's two things between doing one and not doing the other. You know, you have to do what you need. There's, you got health and happiness and love, what consciousness do we really have? They're the ones you're looking for. Get out of the suffering you might have inside. That's the one that's going to lead you to happiness. If you practice the sound of meditation, pranayama, if your thing is Krishna consciousness, it will lead you there. Because you have a light, every breath you take is going to really bring you, eventually you will reach that. Because we have all that inside. He's talking about nirvana, other things. What he's trying to say to you is it's like it keeps, it's always there. But what it is, because you're in a state of love, your breath just feeds everything. You know, you don't even do anything. The love comes in and out, and you just give it right back. You know, I, you don't need it. Yeah, you, you're, you're reminding me of, of um, the first time I met my teacher. Um, I was 19 years old, and uh, he had just come from Russia, where he was meeting with some professors there. And he arrived in Paris, 
19, no, I must have been 21 years old, 1971, in Paris. And um, he was... Um, at the uh, Air India offices on Boulevard de la Madeleine, Big Street in Paris. And they had a room there where he was going to have a press conference. And um, he had been resting. I had never met him before. I was initiated by mail. He had sent me my beads you know, by mail. And um, I had never met him personally. So I was sitting outside the door, and behind this door was my eternal guru. And... Um, his servant had brought his lunch out of the room and uh, there's a, a, a protocol that the disciple will have, uh, will take some food that's left by his or her teacher as, as sacred remnant. So I'm sitting here with a mango skin. I'm like sucking on this mango skin and the tears are coming down. <laughs> you see my spiritual master, any minute that door is going to open. And um, a few minutes later, the door opened and Prabhupada's assistant peeked out, saw me sitting there, and turned back and said, shall I let them in, Prabhupada? I mean, there's someone here to say, let them in. And I peeked around the door, and Prabhupada had been resting on a small little couch, like a big chair. And um, he was now sitting up. And this was the first thing that I saw. I saw him sitting like this, with his hands on his knees, and he waved his arm like this. He looked to the door and he went. It was the first perfect thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was elegant. It was like a, a dancer, some kind of gesture of, of dance. And just making a circle with his arm. Come in, come in like that. There wasn't any wasted effort. There wasn't any extraneous movement or nothing. Just, and uh, I came in. I fell flat on my face in front of him, you know, like I was blubbering like an idiot. And looking up, and he's looking down at me, and I'm looking up at him. And I'm realizing that's about all there is, you know is this total dedication to love for Krishna, where everything is engaged, like you're describing. There wasn't anything wasted. I don't know about you guys, I waste a lot of my, you know, whatever the hell I'm doing. It's all just this energy that just kind of goes around and out there or whatever. There wasn't anything about Prabhupada that wasn't intentional, and quite beautiful, and all because energy, just like money or the air we breathe or the sunshine or everything else, it's all Krishna's energy, and it should be respected. So even the way you carry it, he carried himself with such grace and elegance. It was a beautiful thing to see. Living spiritual consciousness. It was like really impressive, really memorable. Listen. So I was hooked. I would say between suffering, health, and money, you got to go. I had that choice. I did the one. Full of yoga. Which was better? And I said, what good would all the money in the world be if I, only have, uh, if I don't have any health? 
something that you make up your mind, you might have all different problems going on. If you want the inner self to feel free, you must just go practice what you feel. And it's right on the floor, it's right in front of you. Yeah, it's right there, isn't it? It's in the practice, you can find it there. If we're attentive, it's actually there all the time. Krishna is there in the details. Andanta rastam paramanu chayanta rastam govindam adipurusham tamaham bhajami. Krishna is within the atom and between the atoms and in everything. And if we're attentive, we can be inspired at every moment. Anyway, okay. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes, Mike. This is an announcement. Yes, Michael. Before we meet, remember books still on the box over here, blocks mm-hmm. over here, impulses over here, and blankets over here. Mm-hmm. We're getting out easier, so we're going to take that announcement every week so we can get out of the shower and leave the shower. Thank you. Sorry, keep making it, but it's helping us. Yeah. And donations, please. Have donations. Just, you're getting so good at this. I'm really so impressed. I'm a good teacher. Um, let's um, follow the tradition here at Jiva Mukti. Um, and we'll end with the recitation of Om. And we have those oranges or oh, tangerines. Tangerines. And cookies. tangerines and cookies. What are they called? Thumbprint cookies. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Here's what we do here: we chant, we yuck it up, we laugh, we have cookies. Why are they called thumbprint cookies? Because it's right in the middle. That's where the jam is. That's why they call it jam. Magnificent spiritual architecture to creation be always in your heart. And may the trials and tribulations 
reveal themselves to you as opportunities to step forward fearlessly and ask, how may I be of some service? Thank you all for being here. Have a cookie. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.